0: Welcome all to this event, um, Thrive, where we're going to be talking about one of the biggest um, social and I think political issues that we've got in front of us with two people who haven't only in this excellent lucid book laid out the scale of the problem but also come up with some plausible answers, leaving the rest of us to think about the political and campaigning implications of all of that. Now, unless you've taken a major wrong turning, you haven't arrived to hear me, you've arrived to hear them. So before I have a conversation with them, I'm going to ask each of the authors to talk about one aspect of the book. Then we will have a brief conversation, and then I'll throw it open to yourselves to ask questions. And when you do ask questions, if you could wait for a microphone, there are microphones around, and also just briefly say who you are, and then keep your question very, very short pointed and terse, <laughs> just like what I don't do on a Sunday morning. Thank you all very much. Now, this book is called Thrive, The Power of Evidence-Based Psychological Therapies, and it is about the scandalous, it starts off with a scandalous um, under-analysis and under-treatment of a range of mental health problems in our society. And I'm going to start by asking Richard Layard to tell us a little bit about the scale of the problem that has caused him to co-write this book, Richard.
1: Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, Can can everybody hear me? Uh, Thank you very much, Andrew. and Thank you all for coming, Uh, especially many of you who are doing so much for mentally ill people in this country. As we know, uh, mental illness is a great hidden problem in our society, uh, and it has been for a very long time. Uh, When, 60 or more years ago, our former director, William Beveridge here, uh, tried to identify what he thought the problems of society was, he identified his five giants. And they were all to do with the uh, external environment within which the individual operates. Uh, We have now largely tamed those giants... Uh, And yet, as you know from the happiness surveys, uh, we are no happier now than we were 50 years ago. Why is that? Because we neglected the sixth giant, which is the problem within, the problem of mental health, uh, and that is the one that we absolutely have to address now. So I I just wanted to talk first about the scale that uh, Andrew mentioned, then a bit about uh, the cost uh, economics Of therapy. David will say more about the reality of therapy. Uh, And then I want to say what you can do uh, before the general election. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so the impact is, of course, huge. And one of the things uh, our research group has been doing is trying to identify the factors uh, which cause most of the misery in modern Western societies. And we've been looking at evidence for uh, Britain, many other countries, many surveys. And the story is always the same, that the single factor uh, which uh, explains the largest number of people who are in misery is mental illness. Close to that comes physical illness and way behind it come the two subjects which I've spent most of my life working on, <laughs> which are unemployment uh, and poverty. So. Uh, mental illness is a huge cause of misery. It's also a major cause of physical illness. Uh, And this is something which we are learning more and more about. Uh, Extraordinary results showing that uh, depression reduces your life expectancy as much as smoking does. Very, very striking results there. Uh, Of course, Mental illness also makes it more difficult for many people to work. It, it accounts for a half of all disability and people on disability benefits. It accounts for a half of all days off sick, big problem uh, for employers. Uh, it accounts for a great chunk uh, of crime. And if you try and add up uh, what the economic cost of all those things is, it comes to something like uh, 8% of the GNP. That's the bad news. The good news is that uh, David and others have been developing these really effective uh, psychological therapies uh, with a strong evidence base and outcome measurement that we know what they're achieving. And they are achieving uh, at least 50% recovery rates and halving the risk of relapse. Uh, So what do they cost? Well, they cost nothing. (laughs) Uh, of course they have a gross cost i give you some arithmetic they have a gross cost the gross cost if you average from the mildest to the most severe uh, in, in the Britain Britain's uh, psychological therapy program the average is £650 pounds. that's a one-off cost then against that you have if somebody is on benefit they are costing uh, all of us £650 pounds a month month after month. So if you ask the question, if we had more psychological therapy available to a range of all comers, uh, what would we save? The answer is we would save as much on benefits uh, and lost taxes as it would cost to expand the psychological therapy. So that's the first saving. But then there's another saving, and this is a saving on physical health care. Uh, because if you take somebody with a given illness, and a given severity of a given illness, and that person is mentally ill, that person costs the NHS in physical health care £2,000 a year extra, on, uh, more than somebody who's not mentally ill but has the same physical condition. That is a lot of money. That's up to £10 billion altogether in the country. That is a lot of money which could be saved if we could tackle the mental health problems of people who have uh, physical illnesses also. Uh, And if you again work through the numbers and you imagine a general expansion of psychological therapy available to all comers, some of those will be people with physical illness and if you work through the arithmetic you will find again uh, that the savings, this time on physical health care, are enough to pay for because of the expanded uh, psychological therapy. So it's an extraordinary situation where you spend money and you save twice as much on these two different sources. One, one amount on savings, uh, on benefits, and another lot uh, on physical health care. So it really is a no-brainer. But how available are these therapies? Well, when David and I first met in 2004, Uh, Basically, these therapies were not available on the NHS to only a minute number of people. Uh, So we caused a lot of trouble. (laughs) We managed to get uh, the Labour Party's 2005 manifesto to include a general promise to do something about this. But then there was a very exciting and creative period working out what to do. Uh, The the Department of Health was very well organised. I'm sorry the person wasn't here who was leading that um, and we had a parallel process at LSE but I would say about 30 to 40 experts were involved in designing this programme and we put a proposal to Alan Johnson here who was the Secretary of State at the time and to our absolute amazement uh, he accepted it completely uh, it was it was a really <laughs> Actually, uh, I must tell you, Alan is my favourite politician because I've never asked him to do anything which he hasn't done. (laughs) 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 But anyway, the programme was then uh, continued uh, with the support of the coalition government, uh, enthusiastic support. Um, We have here the hero of that... Period uh, since the coalition uh, took over, Norman Lam, who had been fighting on behalf of this program, a, a really splendid battle, and this is not well known, and I, I think we should thank Norman, please also.. <laughs> um, now, just for the sake of balance, <laughs> uh, we, 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 of course, invited Jeremy Hunt uh, to join us here, which he was unable to do, but he wrote a very nice letter. Uh, and the last sentence is, keep pushing. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a... an encouragement to cause more trouble. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, what has what happened since the programme was rolled out? It began in 2008. Uh, is that 6,000 therapists have been trained really professionally to uh, a standard defined by a national curriculum. Uh, We've uh, rolled out services in uh, every part of the country, not every minute area, but most parts of the country. Um, And uh, this year the service is uh, seeing three-quarters of a million people. Uh, and David is a clinical advisor to the program, I should say, who is more responsible uh, than anybody else here, except those I've mentioned uh, for the success of the program. You might think three-quarters of a million was a lot of people until I point out to you that out there in the community there are six million people who are suffering from depression uh, or anxiety disorders that are severe enough to require uh, (coughs) serious treatment. Uh, So uh, three-quarters is a small fraction of six million. Most of those six million are not receiving any treatment of any kind. They're not on antidepressants. They're on nothing. (coughs) Many of them want psychological therapy. We know three-quarters of people with these conditions would like psychological therapy, uh, but uh, it is still not adequately available. So, what we are asking uh, all the parties to do is to include in their manifestos a commitment to doubling the scale of this programme during the course of the next Parliament. And that's where you come in. Uh, There is no real mental health lobby in this country no effective mental health lobby in this country and you can understand why uh, the, 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 if you suffer from mental illness you're not exactly going to uh, go out demonstrating in, <clears throat> in favour of uh, a better deal uh, nor are your relatives so it is very much down to the general public who understand the importance of this issue uh, to, uh, to to apply the pressure uh, that's, that's one reason uh, why three years ago uh, a group of us uh, launched something called Action for Happiness. Uh, oh. The director is here somewhere, there he is. Um, and when we were interviewing for uh, him, him, uh, his post, um, one of the other candidates had gone into the web to see if there was any other organisation with the word happiness in its title and the answer that came back on his screen was your search for happiness has produced no results
2: <laughs> so I, I do
1: believe we can do better than that I do believe we can have a, a happier society but only if we do better than beverage and we pay more attention uh, to the person within uh, I'm sure that a lot of idealistic people here uh, who want to man some barricade or other, uh, and I would say please remember that in modern societies as have got as far as we have, uh, the most important barricade now is the barricade of the mind. Thanks. <coughs>
0: Thank you to uh, Lord Layard. Many points I hope to pick up with him after that. But meanwhile, can we have Professor David Clark answering really the question about what is available out there and how scientifically robust is it?
2: Great. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you all for coming. Um, So the main message of Thrive is that the prospects for people with mental health conditions has really changed. Um, In the last 25 years, enormous progress has been made in psychological treatment research Um, often combining closely integrated programs of experimental and clinical work uh, often British uh, psychologists and other psychotherapy researchers have developed new and very effective psychological treatments for a very wide range of mental health problems Um, NICE has recognized these advances and now recommends evidence based psychological therapies as the first line treatments for depression, for all of the anxiety disorders, so post-traumatic stress, obsessive-compulsive disorder, social anxiety, panic disorder, agoraphobia, for eating disorders, and for personality disorders. NICE also recommends psychological treatments as adjuncts to medication in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, This is an extraordinary advance. Sadly, very few members of the British public can benefit from this advance. Um, If you look at surveys of the public and ask, do you have a preference for psychological therapies or medication, then quite consistently, and there are now 32 studies looking at this, people vote in a ratio of 3 to 1 in favour of psychological therapies. However, in the area where we're best provided at the moment, which is in anxiety and depression, Only 13% of people with those conditions have a chance of having an evidence-based psychological therapy. That's a scandal. It really doesn't make sense. Why are we in this position? Well, we'd suggest there are at least three reasons. Um, The first reason is the way we talk about psychological therapies. It's very common in the media to talk about them as talking therapies. And of course, we can all think when you hear that term, it would be really nice to spend some time with someone who's interested in me, very warm and empathic, non-judgmental, and I would feel quite a bit better. But not many of us can think, and that would cure the problem. And so we underestimate these therapists because they're not like that. The therapists are, of course, very warm and empathic, but these are very specialised interventions developed on the basis of close scientific research. And just to illustrate that, I'll give you three examples. I'll give a couple from anxiety disorders and then one from personality disorders. So one of the most disabling anxiety disorders is panic disorder. In that condition, people are very afraid that certain fairly innocuous bodily sensations, a missed heartbeat, a slight racing heart, feeling slightly dizzy, means something terrible, means they're going to die or collapse in some way. And their fear of these bodily sensations dominates their life. Well, in therapy, you don't just sit down and chat about this. Um, what you do is really test out their beliefs and actions. So the therapist might do some things to bring on some of those fearful sensations. And then the therapist actually might invite the patient to just wander out of the clinic with them and do a little bit of jogging um, outside. And as they start to feel a bit tense in their heart, then they'll do a sprint and test it out. So very much... Not just a talking therapy, but testing your beliefs in action.
3: Um,
2: Another common anxiety disorder is social anxiety. uh, Something which isn't just shyness, it can be really crippling, undermine people's ability to function at work and to develop relationships with other people. And one of the key problems there is mental images. People with social anxiety often see in their head an image of seeing themselves looking very ineffective, looking very weak, often feeling their blushing and beetroot red. And one of the best therapy techniques is actually to video them during a social interaction and help them compare their image of how they think they appear with the actual video image, the reality. If we move on to personality disorders, um, Several effective treatments have been developed recently. One of them by Peter Fonagy, who's up here somewhere, is mentalization therapy. And that is built on research that shows that for people with borderline personality disorder, um, their sort of very strong and reflexive emotional reactions in relationships are often based on a difficulty in understanding and thinking about other people's mental states. And in therapy, when that happens during the therapy process, a series of very structured techniques are used to help people rewind the moments and then sort of increase their ability to think about other people's mental states. Um, So that's one reason. The way we talk about therapies is 30 years behind. It's not up with what the science is. What's the other reason? Well, the other reason is, in general, in mental health, we haven't monitored outcomes. In 2000, there was a survey of British psychiatrists and it revealed that only 11% of them ever used an objective measure of depression to see whether or not their patients had got better. And of course, if you don't measure things, then commissioners and other people can't see that things have changed. The other problem, of course, is that when you have new techniques, you need to train your workforce to be able to deliver them adequately. And we haven't paid enough attention to that in mental health. When keyhole surgery came out, surgeons went for training very systematically and got up to date with it quickly. But we don't systematically train our staff, many of whom learnt the techniques well before the latest advances were developed. So that's a lot of why we've got a problem. Are we making any progress? Well, you've heard Richard uh, thank uh, Norman Lamb and Alan Johnson for starting uh, the really uh, world-beating that's Nature, the world's scientific journal, that's its judgment on the IAP program. So they started the world-beating IAP program, and it has changed things a lot. It's uh, trained about 6,000 new psychological therapists in the latest techniques. It has instituted an outcome monitoring system where in the last three months, about 100,000 people completed treatment in the IAP program, and 98% of them had an objective measure of their anxiety and depression at the beginning and end of treatment. That's never happened in the world before, and it really has taken mental health out of the dark ages in terms of transparency. It's an enormous achievement. And what you find in those services, as Richard said, is about 50% of people are recovering, and about two-thirds are showing worthwhile improvement. So that is great. Um, But that's only for people, adults with anxiety and depression, and it's only seeing 13% of them. So we need to go much further, Um, and we would encourage all of the three parties to think about doubling the scale of the adult IAP because it has proved itself so successful, so move up to 25% of prevalence. Um, and focus particularly uh, in doing that in those people who have long-term physical health problems as well as anxiety and depression. So we need to have, for people who are in uh, stroke rehab clinics, for people who are in cardiovascular clinics, an integrated psychological therapy service there in the clinic which helps them recover. And that will certainly cover its costs very comfortably. Um, We also um, need to extend the benefits of IAT to people with um, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, and there's two benefits we need to extend to them. Firstly, we need an outcome monitoring system, a national outcome monitoring system, so anyone suffering from these conditions can look on a website and can see what the outcomes are in their local clinic. We need transparency there. And the second thing, of course, is we need a national training program which will train what's a quite large workforce in the latest psychological therapy techniques. And the gap between availability and what you'd want is massive. So one of the most effective interventions in schizophrenia is family therapy, which is very good at preventing people having a relapse after they've come out of hospital. Um, One of the areas in the country that has really pioneered that is Manchester, in a recent audit uh, in Manchester, it turned out that only 3% of people with schizophrenia had been offered family therapy. It really doesn't make sense. Um, of course, a lot of the problems we're talking about start in childhood, and there's very good data that untreated uh, mental health problems in childhood predict mental health problems in adulthood and also conduct problems, difficulties of the law and things. However, the reality at the moment is for most children in this country with anxiety or depression, you have to grow up before you get treatment. And that really doesn't make sense. Now, the government has created uh, a very good uh, Children and Young Persons IAP program led by Peter Fonagy, and it's doing exceptional work. But it is very small. And what we need is a clear and ambitious access target for children and until we have that we won't scale it up under the, at the level that's needed and without it we will have tens of thousands of children who for example have social anxiety feel so self-conscious every day in the classroom that they can't concentrate on what their teacher is saying and get lousy exam results and you never recover from that in life. So it doesn't work to wait to the adulthood, there's damage you can't undo. At that point. So enormous progress um, so far but it's too small and we very much hope you'll join with us in um, encouraging uh, further developments and really allowing the British people to have access to developments which have largely been an achievement of British science. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much indeed, David. Now, I'm determined that we are going to stop at quarter to eight, 45 minutes time from now. So we are now going to talk for a little while, and then I'm going to open it up for questions. If, and I'm sure this won't happen, there aren't enough good questions, then we will just go back to carrying on talking. <laughs> so if you don't want to hear us, make sure you've got some good questions. Um, can I just test a few of those figures, um, Richard? You said £650 was the gross cost. Mm. The gross cost of what exactly?
1: Well, it's a gross cost of uh, implementing the system of therapy which is embedded in the program. So um, in depression, for example, it's it's a so-called stepped care system where you have uh, um, to start with what we we call low-intensity treatment, guided self-help and so on, and then if you don't respond, you are stepped up to high-intensity one-on-one with a fully professional therapist uh, who will give you, in principle, up to 16 sessions. So in practice, it's not often more than 10
0: or 12. So 10 to 16 sessions with a, with a therapist. Now, um, you talked about three-quarters of a million people being treated at the moment through the system, and yet out there there are perhaps 6 million people who could benefit from treatment. Yes. Stepping up from that figure to that figure is an enormous jump. You're, you have to recruit a, a new army, really, of therapists. Yes, Who's going to do the recruiting? Are they out there? Um, are there enough good people who really want to learn? Have we got the ability to train that number of people and keep quality control?
2: Well, the answer is yes to all of those because uh, the IAP program has, has right. done it in the last three years. <laughs> and certainly, if you, you look at the sort of people coming through for the training, they are very high quality and these courses are very heavily oversubscribed. So I think it's possible. And, of course, our you, you argument is... You've put 6,000 through over the last few years. Yes. How many more do you need to, in the next phase of the Well, we essentially need to double that to double another the scale 6, of the programme, so another 6,000. It's very uh, feasible. Um, very good. And when you are
0: debating this, as you will be doing, I'm sure, a lot with politicians... Um, on the cost-benefit figures. How robust are your figures? Because they're going to be challenged and torn apart and so forth and jumped up and down on Well,
1: we've been put through the ringer. Uh, Certainly on the first lot of figures, the benefit savings, Uh, I don't think there's anybody questioning that now. I've not come across any. The the figures on the savings on physical health care are based on more recent evidence. And as usual, of course, a lot of the evidence is coming from the United States. Um, and there's not that many controlled trials in Britain uh, where you can see, you know, what is the uh, the effect. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean the first is the first question is the effect of mental health on healthcare costs uh, of a physical kind. Yes. But the second is, will the treatment actually lead to a reduction in the healthcare costs? Perhaps the most uh, impressive evidence in Britain is, is Eric Hassi here. I thought he was going to be. Anyway, there's a a GP uh, who has analysed the records of his practice, uh, and he's recorded the fact that he has a lot of people who are coming to the practice for mental health reasons, some of whom have gone to IAPT and some haven't. Now, this is not Mm. a randomised controlled trial, but he's then followed through how, over time, the people who went to IAPT used the, health, the NHS for their physical health care and he's shown a, a marked fall as those compared effect. with the people who did not go to IAPT and he's found savings of something like a £1,000 uh, a year for all of the patients who uh, went to uh, IAPT as compared with those who didn't.
0: I've, we've used the phrase a lot already today, uh, evidence-based cognitive therapies and so cognitive behavioral therapies now um, two things you you gave some examples there David but what is the underlying thinking behind it what's the philosophy Tell us a little bit about Aaron Beck and his way of approaching these things. Yeah. First so
2: Cognitive behaviour therapy is only one of the evidence-based yeah. treatments that uh, we're advocating, but um, it's called cognitive behaviour therapy because it's about your cognitions or your, your thoughts and your behaviour. So it has the idea that when you're excessively depressed or anxious, it's partly to do with the way you're thinking about what's happening to you and the way those thoughts change the way you behave. Um, So So you can wrestle down your own thought processes, as it were. Yes. I mean, it's much more to do with um, looking at the thoughts like hypotheses in a sort of scientific enterprise and testing them out. So in anxiety, it wasn't so much sort of verbal wrestling as you saw. It was much more actually testing things out in action. So I think I'm going pink all the time, but actually I'm not. Yes. Unless I am, of course, which would be difficult. Um, (laughs) No, well, of course, the answer is most people are worried about blushing do blush. Um, And so one of the things that happens is with inexperienced therapists, they're talking to someone who says, I'm worried about blushing, and they see them blushing in front of them and say, oh, my God, they are right. What am I going to do? Um, But that's really missed the point, which is that you've got to get into the person's head. And then when you see the way they see themselves, it's not that pink... That I'm seeing, but it's this beetroot red with big white globules of sweat on your forehead dripping down. An exaggerated mental
0: yes. pictures. Now, not that long ago, we talked a lot about SSRIs, yes. and we had all that stuff—the low serotonin society—and it was always going to be the chemical and approach yes. was the answer. And now that's been dropped for CBT. And I'm just wondering: this is
2: not a kind of swing of a trendy pendulum away from one therapy towards another, is it? I don't think so. So, why is CBT? more interesting in a sense than the SSRIs and the, the main reason is that um, you learn something new. Taking the SSRIs doesn't teach you anything new and your risk if you've been depressed of becoming depressed again hasn't changed once you stop, stop taking the medication. But with psychological therapies your risk is halved comfortably and that's of course because you learn a new way of thinking about adversity and managing things that go wrong in the future. Um, the other reason why I don't think it's a fashion is that actually we've had very little in the way of new drugs in the last 25 years. This has been one of the big problems. But in terms of the psychological therapies, even within CBT, they've evolved enormously. So, Do you
0: think th- there is a resistance to CBT because nobody can put it into a little packet and market it for a large
2: amount of money? Um, Well, there's some truth in that, because it is very individualised. I mean, it does rely on a very detailed assessment of that particular person and then focusing on what's the key thing for them. And it requires a skilled workforce, so marketing isn't so straightforward. Richard, there are clearly upfront costs to get this going,
0: even if you say, and and the evidence seems to be completely, completely compelling, that you get much more back from what you put in. But we're at a time when the NHS is screaming about the financial pressures. We're going to have a lot more of this between now and the election. Lots of people are going to say to you, if you want the NHS to spend more on this, then they're going to have to be spending less on something else, or else we're going to have to find new ways of funding the NHS. You then get into political, party political dogfights about that. How are you going to deal with it?
1: Well, if you go back to the evidence I was talking about, that if somebody recovers from their depression or anxiety disorder, they go less into AE, they go less for uh, consultant appointments at hospitals, they get less hospital admissions. Uh, these are things which are actually direct costs
0: to the commissioner. And, and can and, and you already I, dem- sorry, can you really demonstrate to... that, that saving?
1: Well, I, I gave you the example from this particular practice, and I'm yeah. giving you also, uh, I can. Uh, put you in touch with uh, randomised trials that have been done in America where they've shown the cost savings uh, to exceed the cost of the, the therapy So, uh, I mean there are other, uh, other uh,
2: examples so for example uh, uh, there,
1: there, are, there, there are particular trials in, in Britain which have been done on particular conditions like the Hillingdon Breathing Clinic or, or the Liverpool Cardiac Clinic and so on where they've been shown mm-hmm. to if they add in the psychological element to reduce the total cost so I think... Uh, for you, those can, of, you can those grab Osborne who, who,
0: who and who Hunt
1: not I mean, the critical thing in the British system, because it's so decentralised now, is the motivation of the local commissioners. Uh, and what we're saying to the local commissioners is, is look, uh, these are actually out-of-pocket costs, any hospital consultant appointments, hospital admissions, and these will drop... Uh, to a a sufficient degree that they they will uh, completely repay the money that you put into the additional psychological therapy.
0: Though you are still, at this stage, asking politicians to invest in something that they're not
2: investing in at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. Which, which, is a, which is a cost that they will have to deal with. Yes. Well, we're asking them to invest in training a workforce so that it can deliver the latest techniques. But in terms of employing the workforce, then I think there is a very much the argument that Richard was saying, that many of our colleagues in physical health are actually extremely keen to have these sort of people working in the physical health settings because they know that it reduces their costs and makes it much better to manage people with long-term physical health conditions. But they can't provide the training. That has to be done by the government.
1: And and just to um, get a, a, a feeling for scale, and we're talking about, over this next parliament, this gross cost, less than half a billion. Now, I don't know if people know how much we spend, for example, on drug and alcohol, uh, in the country, drug and alcohol treatment. We spend a billion on drug and alcohol and we're spending less than half a billion on psychological therapy and, that, and we, want to, we want to double yes, I'm that. Just probing. So it, 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 it's really a fairly small amount of money in the great scheme of the National Health Service costing £110 billion.
0: And do you think you can persuade the Osbournes and Ballses, never mind the Hunts um, and Andy Burnhams of this world, to, to put this kind of extra cost into their manifestos at a time when everyone's saying, well, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it?
2: <laughs> well, their predecessors uh, actually agreed to do this, and they uh, set up the IAP program. <laughs> and, of course, it was an experiment then. Very enlightened then, gentleman. But, you can't always rely on that. Uh, but, but, of course, now it's proved its worth. It's been mm. successful. So uh, we would think it's a straightforward point. The other thing to realize, though, is that the amount of the mental health budget that we spend on psychological therapies is very small. So when we started on the IAP program, it was only 3% of the total mental health budget. It's now astronomically increased to 7%. Mm. You might think, well, what else are we spending money on other than therapies? Um, Glacier, so there's Smith a big Klein, issue. <laughs> right.
0: Um, you, you both um, have <laughs> uh, used the we, we're doing this, we are going to do that, the IAP um, and I want to probe the we a little bit I'm staying on the political side of things um, Richard right at the beginning there you said that's, it's now up to you, it's up to the public for those people who really think yes I, I, can, I get the Thrive agenda I understand the thing, it's very very important what should they actually do? I mean there's nothing well, to well, join I, is
1: there? I, I, I mean, there are two steps in this the first step is the politicians they're actually the easiest step because there's huge goodwill in all the three parties towards this, and I'm quite hopeful that we will get uh, the things which we're hoping for said in these manifestos. Completely different is to make it happen on the ground, um, because the, it is, it, it, even if there is a notional allocation of up to half a billion to mental health, to psychological therapy, uh, which wasn't there before, um, this goes into what's called the, the, the baseline of the commissioning groups and they then decide how to spend their money. And the, the, only, san- the only real sanctions that we have are that uh, there is an access target, that is what has kept this programme alive because the access target has been uh, just a bit more than 750,000 and that's what has enabled... Uh, Norman to keep up the pressure on the NHS England and its commissioners to uh, keep moving the thing forward. So the access target for each separate commissioner, which is which is currently expressed as fifteen percent of need and uh, needs, uh, we haven't got there now. We're at thirteen, as David said, needs to go up to twenty-five for twenty twenty. That's one thing. Then the other ta- the other pressure, is the recovery target, um, and there is a sufficiently good information system that for every separate um, commissioning area um, these access achievements and these recovery targets are there on the net. Anybody here can go into the web find out if their local commissioning are achieving these targets at, and if not they can complain.
0: I'm sorry Richard, when we talk about recovery, what are we talking about? Somebody declaring themselves to be recovered no. or returning to work or
2: how, how do you define that?
1: So we talk about the-
2: Yeah, So um, it, it has a sort of technical definition so on the sort of scales of anxiety and depression that people have, um, someone is recovered if they are above the sort of clinical threshold at the start of treatment and go below it at the end. It's an interesting point that you raise though because um, quite a number of people uh, would say to their therapist, actually, I'm feeling a lot better now. Um, That's fine. And then when you look at the measures, they still actually haven't fully recovered. Um, And what I think the services are beginning to learn now is that you you are grateful to have those thanks, but say, um, well, things have improved quite a lot, but there are these other issues that are still coming up. Shall we have a few more sessions to deal with them? And that moves people on further. Um, And this is a sort of very important issue, I think, that the field hasn't caught up with the fact that we can measure these things so universally. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of NHS England, the Department of Health, has been driving this initiative in terms of access. Numbers of people get into the service and their waiting times. There hasn't been enough emphasis yet on how many people recover. And that's partly because commissioners haven't realized the world has changed, and you can look at that and you can commission for that. So we need to have an equal uh, emphasis on that. And then miraculous things can happen, actually. So um, only last week, actually, in in a meeting in the House of Commons, one of the leaders of one of the IAP services came up afterwards and said they had been looking very closely at the people who uh, had not recovered in the last month who'd gone through the service and they were looking for themes and they were getting the sort of average recovery rate each month about 45 percent but they spotted several themes and that service it's now Buckinghamshire has now moved up to 65 percent recovery for the last five months mm. so these are really dramatic changes that can happen when you focus on the right thing. Mm. But in mental health, people haven't really realized you can recover. And that's another reason why things haven't moved on, because, of course, there's a lot of fear about talking about mental health, there's a lot of stigma. And one of the reasons for that is that people think, what's the point of talking about it, because you can't get any better. but that is very changed. interesting.
0: My very last question to Richard, and I'll open it up to the audience. Um, right at the beginning, Richard, you were mildly critical of the current mental health charities and so forth. There wasn't enough of a movement going on. How much of this depends upon getting organisations which do exist out there to slightly change their focus and come shoulder to shoulder with you? Organisations like Mind and the Rest.
1: Well, we've had very good support from Mind uh, and rethink and other mental health charities um, in the. Uh, we need to talk alliance. Um, but I think that the, there's, there's, there's always a problem when you have a, a charity which is both trying to get the government to do something but is also taking money from the government and is, is therefore ha, has to be a bit careful uh, mm. just how critical it is. So I think there's still an issue as to whether... Uh, uh, There is a a, a niche out there for a purely campaigning um, Mm. mental health charity uh, which deals with this on a day-to-day basis, not depending on individuals to go and badger ministers all the time, but but is up there uh, with a 24-hour response.
0: Does this y- I said it last question, very quick last question. Does this yawning gap in health provision make the two of you angry? You both seem very unangry people, but does it make you angry? <laughs> it did.
1: Let me say, I mean I, I came into this from outside and um, I was astonished to discover, talking to David, that NICE were recommending that these therapies should be provided to hundred percent of people with depression and anxiety disorders should be offered to them. That's what NICE guidelines said. And the the legal position is that the um, NHS is meant to uh, have serious regard for NICE guidelines. And they were being completely ignored and nobody was bothering about it at all. I found this absolutely mind-blowing. And that is actually why we were able to succeed with this campaign that we have had, because of the NICE guidelines. NICE is the most wonderful organisation that should be preserved and cherished. And uh, to say that we should be implementing NICE guidelines is our central point. And and just one other word. We uh, got into the Health and Social Care Act uh, a provision for parity of esteem between mental and physical health. A lot of people say, yes, but we don't know what that means. We say we do know what that means. That means that NICE recommended therapies should be as available if you're mentally ill as if you're physically ill.
0: Yes, there would be a huge scandal if uh, only 12% or 13% of cancer patients were getting the drugs that NICE wanted. Right, on that note, a lot to talk about. If you can raise your hand, there's a lady here with, uh, in the middle there with a blue jersey on and then a gentleman with a beard at the back. I'll take you to... Just wait for the microphone. If you could just tell us who you are and ask a brief question, I'd be grateful.
3: Uh, Can you you hear that? Yes. Yes. Uh, My name is Gillian Bridge. I'm a psycholinguistic consultant, but I've worked in prisons as an addiction therapist, and I work as a psychotherapist. I also now go around schools delivering resilient training to schools. Um, And... I've come to doing that because I realise that a lot of problems could perhaps have been prevented in the first place. So I work with neuroscience to develop schemes which will help people avoid some of the things that you are then treating. Um, And I just wonder to what extent you feel that we should be doing much, much more with children at a young age, which I think can be incorporated even in academic curricula, that we can actually build these things in through all kinds of... I haven't got the time to go into them now, but practical strategies. And how much could we save doing that?
2: David, I think, I think you mentioned the, the problem of children not getting intervention earlier on. Yes. So, I mean, um, it, it's quite clear that if you make these treatments available uh, to children, uh, they have very sustained and long-term benefits. Um, But I think you're also thinking about sort of broader preventative work in children. I think Richard will want to say something about that.
1: Well, we were involved at LSE in uh, uh, introducing the uh, Martin Seligman Resilience Programme into 22 schools as a trial, um, which had pretty good results. But uh, it's a small programme. And what we're now involved in is an attempt to completely restructure the whole secondary uh, PSHE curriculum um, so that it, it is evidence based and it covers both social and emotional learning and all the standard subjects like sex and relationships, healthy living, also parenting, uh, also <coughs> mental health, and also mindfulness. So we, we need a much, much more comprehensive. Uh, approach obviously to life skills in secondary schools and in primary schools
0: than we have at the moment. Right, the gentleman at the back there had his hand up. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Wonderful talk. If I just refer to an earlier book of yours, of which I've got, Happiness and Analysis of a New Science, I want to just ask you when you wrote that book at that time, were you subconsciously influenced by that great Italian philosopher, Giambattista Vico, La Suenza Nuova? immediately the I saw the time I wanted to ask you this since I first looked at the book. If you just could answer because the new science, and
0: a new science, I thought you might be Are you an
2: undercover you, sub- Vico subconsciously
0: influenced by Vico. 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 Vico, no. Vico. <laughs> well, there we are. There we are. Can we have um, But it could have been well known <laughs> <laughs> Um gentlemen. gentlemen. Yeah.
2: Uh,
1: I'm Lewis Wolpert from University College. Hmm. My impression is that the public have very little knowledge of mental illness. And shouldn't it be a major step forward that school children in their education learn about mental illness? Hmm. They learn about other health problems, but this is totally and utterly neglected, and I think it would be an enormous advantage to change Uh, that. That that is one of the... Aspects of this programme that I was talking about that we are now trialling in 30 schools with a proper randomised
0: uh, basis. The lady next to Lewis. <coughs>
5: Um, I I do agree with the gentleman next to me on that. Jenny Edwards from the Mental Health Foundation, and we're involved in um, a number of initiatives in this area, including the very young age group, because we know that mental health problems start very young. And I was wondering what our distinguished speakers would um, think were the correct... Therapies and preventative approaches to use um, around the perinatal um, stages and for parents um, learning to be parents with their young children um, because when that goes wrong it seems to be at the root of so much that people experience in their adult life.
1: Well, we've been advocating uh, parenting classes covering the emotional aspects of parenting both the parent-child relationships and the parent-parent relationships for some time Um, and of course there are some well developed uh, programs in the states uh, which we could perfectly well uh, deploy here and I have been certainly trying to encourage politicians to think of having parenting classes coordinated through the NHS but uh, with with financial contributions uh, (laughs) if possible from the parents as well um, as a standard universal offer. That's one thing, but then of course, uh, there's also the problems when uh, uh, the issue when, parent, when problems develop. Uh, and uh, St- Stephen Scott here has been terrific in developing parent training for parents who are having difficulties with their children. It's important, again, to have that sort of thing. Available quickly, and we're also very keen to develop <coughs> within IAPT couples therapy, so that when problems developing between the parents, which is often one of the worst things of all for the children, uh, that those can be treated early on. Thank you very
0: much. Another gentleman at the back there.
4: Hi, um, my name's Paul. I work for Mind, the mental health charity. I thought we were doing an all right job, Richard, but I'm, I'm a little bit concerned now. Um, uh, there's one thing that seems to come up quite a lot is in terms of access is people waiting a long time. And I wonder what your take on a mandated waiting time to access therapy would be.
1: Waiting time.
2: Yep. Mandated, waiting. Mandate, mandated waiting time well clearly um, you don't want an excessively long waiting time but you also want to make sure that when people do get the treatment they get good treatment and there, there's a bit of a balance there um, one of the problems that sometimes you get if you drive services very hard on waiting times is you get a certain amount of cheating where what they do is they, they bring people in for one session say because you then meet that target but they don't get a full course of Treatment, and we do have some IAP services in the country that, unfortunately, are doing this rather a lot. I mean, there is one service um, that um, actually only twenty percent of the people get a course of therapy. The rest of them seem to be coming in for, for one of these things, and it's got no waiting list. These things are correlated, so one has to be a bit careful with with individual targets. I think what we would say is that you have to have some sort of, you know, if you're going to have targets. A, a range of targets which define a good functioning service. Don't just push on one alone, because unfortunately you right. get this sort of gaming. And gentlemen here in the.
0: Speak? Uh, hello? Can you hear me? Uh, we can, yes, if you speak, oh, okay. speak up, we'll hear you. That's fine.
4: Uh, Richard Ross, Rose Trees Trust. We're a private charity funded by a business family, and we support cutting edge medical research. And to me, it's a no-brainer, because what you're saying to me is the cost of this can be recovered within a year. Any business that made 100% return would be making a fortune. So if the government doesn't have the money immediately, why not persuade business people or people who've got money to put up the money on the basis that within a year
0: they'll be paid back their money? Mm-hmm. It's an admirably logical
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm... Uh always worried about taking the pressure off the NHS (laughs) Um, and I also uh, think one needs to be jolly careful about multiple sources of funding Um, the things which do work best in England have had single sources of funding Um, and um, provided they can show value for money I think that's the best way to make our case having said all that of course Uh, that occupational health and businesses should be taking care of the mental health of their own employees Um, and they can be uh, providing their own therapy uh, if they can make sure that it's of good quality Uh, that's highly desirable because the the easier access to therapy there is for everybody uh, the better but I am a little bothered about some some kind of mixed funding uh, scheme uh, which um, I, 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 I'm genuinely anxious about I mean just just to understand what I'm saying the biggest casualty of the cuts at the moment are child mental health services because they have two sources of finance they, they, they are not in a position to fight their commissioners in the way that you can fight your commissioner if you are totally dependent on that one commissioner
0: it's a kind of political paradox. And Norman Lama, thank you. join us. Minister. Uh,
4: uh, thanks very much indeed. And uh, in, enormous credit to both of you for the work that you've done on this. Uh, just, I mean, on CAMS, very quickly, it um, seems to be we've got to change this commissioning arrangement with it being split between local government, CCGs, and NHS England. It's just yeah, crazy. Yeah, and yeah. it will create all sorts of gaming, uh, as we know. And it has to change. second point, uh, just a reflection from the inside, Uh, and I think Alan experienced exactly the same thing. It's so frustrating when you know the evidence is there uh, to demonstrate the return on your investment, and yet it's always just seen as through the prism of extra spending in health. Uh, And we even know that there's a return within health, but it's still Mm -hmm. just seen as an extra cost pressure, and you just wish that government could see it uh, in a more holistic way. Uh, And then finally, just uh, the point that Richard, you made about how you get local commissioners to make sure that it is actually delivered on the ground. That's why I feel it's so important and why I've got this commitment in the mandate to introduce access and waiting time standards in mental health from next year. And it's a start and it has to be progressively implemented over the course of the next Parliament. But until you have some equilibrium on uh, standards and uh, the incentives and levers between mental health and physical health... The money will always go into physical health, and it's time that mental health got treated in the same way that people knew the maximum time they had to wait before accessing treatment.
0: I think the only response to that is thanks, isn't it? It's a news. No, I mean, by all means, respond at a greater length if you'd like to.
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm grateful for all, all that you do, Norman, and I think uh, you know, that will be. It a definite
0: help, no doubt. Uh, there's a lady in the middle there, yes.
2: I mean, It has been immensely heartening, actually, how uh, Norman and the Labour Party, but, but also the Conservative Party, have been so strong in support of mental health. Um, and um, sometimes you know, that, that hasn't been picked up, but, they, but the support has been justified because it has achieved great things. So we're just looking forward to continuing support.
1: Uh, I mean, I'd mean, just like to emphasise, since we're on all the the key problem is the local commissioners. Uh, and these are sort of invisible people. Uh, most, I would suppose most of us here do not know who is commissioning our, our, our local, our, our local uh, health services. Um, but, you, but this is something which actually it's your, well, our jobs as citizens to find out and to harass these people. Uh, and their, their performance is there to be found on the website. So this is what we need to get going. We need to get the local newspapers involved and so on.
2: I mean, that's part of the function of the book, actually. I mean, we, we see the, the book as ammunition, really, for yeah, you all. Yeah. We see it as giving you all the arguments for you to have conversations with your local commissioners. Um, and um, many of the people who are involved in it's Many, many thousands of people involved in the IAP programme are having those conversations with the local commissioners and are having effects, and they are persuading people locally. So Um, buy the book, read the book, and then throw it at people. (laughs) There's a
0: lady in the middle here who's got a question.
6: Hello, my name's Che Rosebert, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've been working mostly in East London, and I've been working with NHS for 20 years. Um, even before I trained as a clinical psychologist I've been working with people mainly who experience psychosis and people with complex um, conditions and as we know that most people particularly in complex and severe presentations have suffered from trauma which is actually a social problem not just an individual problem and thinking... I've been very grateful the last few years for the um, attention that IAPT has brought to psychological therapies. But thinking beyond individual psychological therapies, thinking as a psychologist, somebody who works with whole communities of people, just wondering what your vision is to go beyond the kind of individual work and so what you would see would happen in the next, really. Particularly for those people, the 50%, who don't recover from that first contact with psychological services in IAPT.
2: David Clark. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is the 50%. Rich and I thought was a good idea because you know it's it's a target, Um, and Alan announced it actually on the first day, didn't you? Um, But but it also produces a myth, which is there's 50% of people who don't benefit, and that simply isn't the case. So when you you look at these therapies, the majority of people are getting benefit. They may not have got all the way to that clinical cutoff. But I think, you know, um, in terms of people outside of anxiety and depression with those sort of problems that you've talked about, we haven't got started yet. I mean, almost none of them are getting evidence-based therapies. And so I think the big push at the moment, and I think it'll keep a lot of people in mental health preoccupied for quite some time, is allowing those people to get the sort of therapies that the people with anxiety and depression are getting. I mean, it, it really is an extraordinary scandal that... You know, only 3% of people with schizophrenia get the benefit of family therapy. We've got Daniel Freeman here in the audience who's been doing lots of very innovative uh, treatments for people with schizophrenia. Strong clinical trials. None of those things are available outside of Oxford at the moment. This just has to change. And I think we'll get a long way by doing that. It's just a start.
0: Right. Two questions from the expensive seats here. (laughs) Gentleman here in the middle and then gentleman here
7: Uh, Mike Rutter from the Institute of Psychiatry. Well, you make a very persuasive, overwhelming case on both the nature and extent of the problem and what needs to be done. But there are, I think, three concerns I have. One, you have already touched on, on the commissioners. And because across the whole of medicine, there is extraordinary variation across areas as to the delivery of whatever treatment is required. So, yes, it certainly applies here, but it applies more broadly.
3: The second, I think,
7: is the issue of the fact that psychological treatments are not regulated. And that so uh, I'm frequently told when recommending something uh, that cognitive behaviour therapy is already being provided, but it's been provided by a psychotherapist not trained ever by anybody in CBT. And uh, that is a problem. Now, there are plenty of good places where it is available, but it still remains very patchy. And the third issue, I think, is that as a clinician, I actually don't care very much uh, about saving money. Uh, If there is a saving of money, that's great, but I'm sceptical about the extent of savings claimed. Once you take into the Uh, equation, the savings from reducing physical ill health. Maybe it'll work like that, and if it does, I'll be delighted, but I'm sceptical. And similarly, I worry about the emphasis on happiness. Uh, We've got enough serious problems, and there's a danger of triviality. If it goes along in making people happy, so much the better.
2: Great, so if I take your first two points, Michael, and then i 'll leave Richard for your second two points. so first one is variation. of course, that is the bugbear of, of health, isn't it? Um, but the first thing is to be able to measure it and publish it, and of course, we had some terrible scandals in cardiovascular surgery, particularly with children, but the surgeon stepped up to the plate they. Re- monitored their outcomes, they recorded them and they've reduced variability enormously. Well, IAPT is now managing to do exactly the same in mental health and we've never had it before. You know, we do have a national website where you can look up Exactly how each service is doing. You see the variability, but once you can see it, of course, you can now drive it in the same way as the surgeons have done. And that's clearly the aim of what's happening. Um, And certainly uh, the academic health science networks, um, several of them, certainly the London one, the Oxford one, I think four others, have adopted IAP services as one of their big priorities because they see this is one of the few things where they're getting data which they can now use to drive reduction in variability. So I think that's really key. The thing of uh, psychotherapy not being regulated is, of course, a big problem. Uh, If a a new treatment uh, evolves and it turns out to be very effective and very popular, then there's a slight temptation for someone to say, well, I do it in any case, even if you don't. And so there is a need for some form of regulation. It is an enormous shame, I think, that the, the different psychotherapy bodies didn't agree on a form of regulation which was not generic, just a psychotherapist, but actually was also you know, you, are you trained in this particular nice recommended treatment, whether it's brief psychodynamic or cognitive behavioral or not? But that, that didn't happen. However, in the IAP program, you do essentially have regulation. So um, they will only employ people who've, who've been trained and passed out to a certain standard on courses which are according to a national curriculum. Um, Only today, actually, Kevin Mullins is here in the audience, and I have been working with the Royal College of Psychiatrists to get an accreditation system for all of the IAP services. Um, And part of that accreditation will be they have to declare the training of all of their staff on the annual accreditation process. Um, So I think it is possible to bring regulation back in through the back door through this boutique operation called IAPT, even if the profession didn't go for it in its entirety. I'm not sure if we have time for Richard's defense of
0: happiness before.
1: Well, I think that, that I, I thought at the very end I avoided that, that, that word and, and talked more about misery, which I'm sure Michael is, is really worried about. But, but I just wanted to address the savings question. Of course, it, it is deeply shocking um, that uh, to get mental health taken seriously, uh, you have to point out that if you do take it seriously, it saves money. Um, but uh, this is the reality of uh, partly, well, Alan knows, probably knows the story better than I do, but um, I, I don't think we would be he- here now talking about this, quite honestly, if there weren't that dimension to it. And there's one really interesting fact <laughs> which didn't come out in our earlier discussion which is that mental illness is the main illness of working age. Uh, in fact, oft of all illness, you know, as defined and measured in terms of morbidity by the WHO, mental illness accounts for 50% of all illness of people of, mental, of, men, uh, uh, of working age. Um, most physical illness occurs after people have retired. And so the economics are completely different. And um, I think it's, it's only because of that that we managed to get this yeah. taken seriously. Uh, Tony Blair was exercised over the number of people who are on capacity benefits. And uh, when we could point out that this would make some difference to that, we began to hear people yeah, yeah, yeah. taking some notice and, and that, that's, that's the reality of it but of course it, it, it is shocking
8: uh, we
0: should be spending
8: money for the relief of misery
0: the gentleman at the front here
8: um, my name is Paul Nicholson I'm an active retired Anglican priest and I'm running something called Taxpayers Against Poverty first of all may I say I'm a total supporter um, and it occurred to me as we were talking um, as a parish priest I was constantly comforting uh, depressed people. And maybe there's some training to be done through theological colleges. I don't know, but it's just a thought. But really, I want to raise two questions on uh, prevention. Uh, We know from the work of people like Professor Michael Crawford and the Institute of Brain Chemistry and Human Nutrition that poor maternal nutrition produces permanent development of brain disorder if they don't eat properly before and during pregnancy. And now we have a growing number of um, of food banks and uh, three days food from a food bank is not going to provide adequate maternal nutrition. It uh, seems to me to be a growing problem. Uh, the other one is that the, the Royal College of Psychiatrists and, um, and the Government Office of Science have made the link between debt and mental illness. And uh, we've got um, you know, cuts, caps and council tax, bailiffs and rent arrears and council tax arrears and other debts. Uh, creating the most enormous distress and uh, and misery, so um, I think there must be some prevention to go with everything you're saying that I support yes, no, about course, cure. Sure, of course, of,
1: of course, and I mean we, we have been actually very keen uh, to get established within the IAP service um, a, 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 a parallel support on issues to do with employment benefits and debt. Um, and um, this is an interesting story of political economy we put it into the program which we put to Alan and the Department of Work and Pensions said you can't do that, that's our job (laughs) Uh, and we struck out £30 million out of our proposal to Alan and what did the Department of Work and Pensions come up with? Nothing Uh, uh, this is what happens When when you get Attempt to co-fund things or not to have a concentration of responsibility. Uh, And uh, I totally agree with you that all of these social dimensions, if if a person is in trouble, ought to preferably be covered with somebody on the same corridor as the person who is giving the therapy.
0: Professor Layard has comprehensively stomped on co-funding all evening. So we, we, we get the message. It's a lady at the back there in the blue, sh- blue shirt.
5: Um, thank you, Andrew. Um, my name's Sally Brearley. I'm, I'm a member of a clinical commissioning group. Oh. So I'm one of these commissioners, and I'd just like to support what you said and, and urge all the audience to come along and badger us. Um, because uh, we have to prioritise, and one of the ways we prioritise is on the basis of what our local populations are telling us that they need from the NHS. So look up your local clinical commissioning group, find out when the governing body meets, come along to the governing body and raise your questions and make your voices heard. And now is a very good time to do it because between now and early autumn, we have to draw up our commissioning intentions for next year. So I'd like to see anybody who lives in Sutton at our next governing body meeting. Thank you
0: very
5: the book at us. So my question is, is it out in paperback?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not yet, but there's a, there's a lady just in front of you there. Thank you. Nobody will uh, survive in lots of meetings with the hardcover. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lady in red and then a gentleman in white there.
7: Thanks.
5: Thank you very much for your talk. Um, you said mental illness is the main illness of people of the working age and I also wanted to come back to when you said that um, mental illnesses aren't being measured objectively do you think that might lead to overdiagnosis?:
0: Good question.
2: Overdiagnosis a danger? Um, yeah, well, I, th- I think the, the key thing of using systematic measures is that you're also using a measurement system which is reliable. Uh, so what we had before was a rather casual uh, sort of uh, system, and it may or, in some cases give lower rates, but they were underrepresentation. I think the advantage of using the latest uh, techniques in terms of structured interviews and and measures and things is that um, they have established validity that we didn't have before. Right, we're nearly out of time. There's a gentleman there with a white shirt on and there's a lady
0: up in the gods. There are two ladies up in the gods. So if we we take those questions quickly, then we'll get them in. Uh,
7: My name's Andrew Lesky. I'm just an ordinary member of the public. Um, As
1: I understand it from the newspapers, from the television an enormous uh, number of people within our prison services, uh, not prison officers, obviously, the prisoners, are suffering from mental conditions of one kind or another. And and yet, so far, you've not mentioned the delivery of these kinds of therapies uh, through the prison
7: service. I wonder if you have anything to say about
2: that. Yeah, so this is an extremely important point. Um, And um There are some of the IAP services which actually have extended to delivering in in prison. The Lambeth one is delivering in the Brixton prison. Uh, The uh, Buckinghamshire one is also delivering in local prisons and and giving uh, prisoners exactly the same uh, access to treatment that you would have if you weren't uh, detained at a majesty's pleasure. Um, And that's very important, I think, because um, uh, the incidence of mental health problems in, in the prisons is extremely high and if you're going to help people to uh, stay well and out of prison after they've been released, it makes a lot of sense to use that time in this constructive way. Do you need
1: data on the effectiveness?
2: Uh, Yes, so each of those services actually does have uh, the recovery data and things. I don't have it to hand, but we could look it up for you. Uh, (coughs) It also will be on the, the website again. I mean, the real key thing here is public transparency. Okay, two last questions. I'll
0: just take both the questions and then go for answers. Is Play. a
6: doubling of the scale of the programme ambitious enough, um, given uh, the, sort of the scale of the problems you're talking about? And if so, how should access be prioritised?
0: Is it ambitious enough, what you're proposing? And if it is, how do you prioritise? Because you're still way short of the 6 million people who have identified need.
2: Yeah, so, um, I mean... The original program uh, was um, essentially based on the speed in which we thought we could train people and the speed in which you could scale things up um, in a parliament and then a continuation from that. And doubling is essentially what we think is realistic in the next parliament. Um, And so we think this is a very sort of straightforward after the possible argument. Um, I think we'd have to see where we get to at that point. All right, I think that's a good place to end.
0: Um, I'm here to chair, not to puff. But I have to say that this book is an absolute lucid model, I would have thought, of first making an argument and then winning the argument. (laughs) It is, of course, there to be thrown, but I thoroughly suggest you buy it and read it first. Thank you both very much. Thank Thank you.